Welcome to this week's episode of A Cowboy Life, the podcast, presented by Smoothie King, blending goodness to fuel your greatness. I'm Brady Tinker. A brief prologue to today's story. You know, I've been privileged to cover the Dallas Cowboys for my TV show's DFW Sportsbeat and my radio show, Off of the Helmets, and now for A Cowboy Life, the storytelling podcast for nearly 22 years. It's been a great job for me, and the most enjoyable part of each season is getting to know the players. And there are sometimes as many as 75 or 80 guys who wear a cowboy uniform during a season. So no, I don't get to know them all. But the ones I do get to know, I usually connect with sort of out of an instinct. They seem interesting to me, and I gravitate their way. The most fun stretch of the Cowboys seasons that I've covered to this point started in 2003, when things around the organization were beginning to shift. Bill Parcells was coming in, and so was a nobody named Romo at quarterback, and there was a sense that a new era was coming. The draft class of 2005 was a top 10 all-time Cowboys group, and they were full of energy and personality, and covering the Cowboys was beginning to be fun again. Several of the rookie class had wonderful personalities and some charisma, and nearly all of them made the team and made an impact. Among that group was a tall, athletic New Yorker who grew up in Co-op City, then played his high school sports in North Carolina, all to end up a college football player at the University of Virginia. His name is Chris Canty. He had a passion for the game, for the city of Dallas, and for life in general. And in 2007, the Cowboys were really good. Here's a story from Chris Canty's A Cowboy Life. It's called The Most Talented Team I Ever Played On. I tell people this all the time, and folks don't believe me. That year in Dallas was more fun than the year we won the Super Bowl in New York. In case you do happen to remember 2007 at all off the top of your head, then you know the Cowboys had a nice mix of young athletes and veteran influence. They won 13 games that year and earned a top seed in the playoffs. So why did Chris say that people don't believe him when he says it's the most fun he ever had in his career? Well, because Chris ended up in a Giants uniform in 2009 and won a Super Bowl in Arizona two years later over Tom Brady's unbeatable Patriots. And he had a hell of a year. That's why. But you come into the NFL with a group of men all about your age, all thrilled to be wearing the NFL shield, and all feeling like they have the world by the tail especially if they're Dallas Cowboys. To top it all off for Chris, his new coach was Bill Parcells, a noted winner in this league. And everywhere he looked were young, talented guys just like him who wanted to talk all the time about winning. You had to be there to see it because it was just such a young vibe on the team. I mean, yeah, we had the veteran guys. You had veteran guys. But it was a young vibe. Like, that, that was a young team. You know, you had it all was. the young guys on the defense, and you had Marion on the offense. You know, you had a bunch of young guys, and that's what made it so cool. It made it fun, you know, because it was just kind of like, we were so good, so young, we didn't know any better. It was really a coming-of-age type of season in a lot of ways, on and off the field for us. It's rare that an NFL team will choose eight guys in a draft and have seven of them become regulars as rookies. But that's what happened with the class of 05 for the Dallas Cowboys, Chris. Here's the thing. I knew that I was probably going to get drafted by the Dallas Cowboys, you know, a month, month and a half before the draft kicked off. I just didn't know where. I didn't know how much my medical situation with the knee and the eye was going to impact my draft status. But what I did know is Jerry Jones wanted me in the building. 
Chris's medical status before the 2005 draft class looked like this. In his senior season at Virginia, he tore his anterior, posterior, and medial ligaments in his knee. But it happened in October, so he had been rehabbing for seven months prior to the draft, and the doctors were giving him a clean bill of health with that knee. But in January of 2005, just a few months before the draft, he was trying to exit a bar when a fight broke out on the other side of the room and a beer bottle was thrown. You can see it in the air, traveling some 20 feet. And as Chris says, lightning struck the tallest tree. And that was him. The bottle crashed into the side of his head, immediately detaching his retina from his left eye. Emergency surgery saved his sight, but there were several more surgeries to stabilize his vision. A special helmet was developed to protect that eye from any contact on the football field, but his draft stock went from a late first round pick to, well, who knows when he'll get picked. And, and I kind of had an idea of the direction that they wanted to go with things because when I came on my pre-draft visit, Bill and Jerry, you know, they kind of told me, listen, we want to change this defense to a 34 defense. He says it's been built on it's going to be the same defense you ran with Al at Virginia. Al at Virginia is Al Groh, the longtime coach of the Virginia Cavaliers football team. Bill Parcells had Al on his staff with the Giants when they won Super Bowl 25. They were friends, so Parcells had a great handle on Chris Canty, the person, as well as the football player. Chris falling to the fourth round, while unlucky for him, was very lucky for the Dallas Cowboys. Al Groh was running the same defense at Virginia that Parcells taught him with the Giants 11 years earlier, and the same defense Parcells was installing for Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys in 2005. So maybe, in some ways, Chris Canty falling to the fourth round was lucky for him too. I knew that there was going to be the potential to draft me, and I kind of had an idea of some of the guys that they had an eye on. But then to actually see the draft fall the way that it fell, I was a little frustrated after day one, day two. I didn't get drafted in the first three rounds, and I was just kind of like, all right, whatever happens, happens. I saw when the Cowboys took Demarcus, I was like, okay, they took him over Sean Marion. That's, that raised an eyebrow, but I could see that because we played against Troy and he was a hell of a go-getter then. And then I saw them take Marcus at 20. And I was like, okay, there's a stud in. He's going to play the left-hand position. Then in the second round, they took KB. I was like, I wasn't sure whether he's going to be an inside guy or an outside guy. Now, they took Marion at the beginning of the fourth round. I'm thinking I'm not going anywhere until the fifth round. I see the trade happening on the screen. We have a trade. The Philadelphia Eagles have traded pick number 132 in round number four and pick number 206 in round number six to the Dallas Cowboys with pick number 132 in the fourth round of the NFL draft. The Dallas Cowboys select Chris Canty, defensive end, Virginia. I get a phone call. I'm Jerry Jones saying, you want you to be a cowboy. So I said, okay, great. Send me my plane ticket. I'm ready to go to work. Quote, I'm ready to go to work. Just the words that Jerry and Coach Parcells expected to hear from Chris Canty. They'd spent time with him on his visit to Dallas a month earlier, and they had enjoyed extensive phone calls with an old friend, Virginia's football coach, Al Groh, who had let them know that Chris was a worker and that he was going to be an impact player in a 3-4 defense in the NFL. But there was one surprise for Chris when he got to rookie camp. I didn't really know about Jay Ratliff until I actually got there to rookie minicamp. And when I got off the plane in Dallas and Texas into that, that Marriott on 114, Jay Ratliff was my roommate. It 
It's easy to understand why Chris didn't know about Jay Ratliff. You see, Jay was chosen in the seventh round, three rounds after Chris was picked in round four. And well, in that time, he was elated and celebrating, and he was calling folks to tell him that he was now in the NFL and he was going to head to Dallas to be a Cowboy. He didn't care anymore about who the Cowboys chose later in the draft. He was just inhaling and exhaling and dreaming of being part of America's team. And then he opened the door to room number 219 at that small hotel in Irving, Texas, and there was a giant, angry-looking man named Jay. The whole weekend for rookie minicamp, this guy says like five words to me. You know, I come <laughs> into the room, you know, he's already unpacking his stuff. He, he looked at me, I looked at him, and I was like, what's up, man? I'm, I'm Chris. He was like, what's up? Like, kind of like, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to know you. I'm here for business. And I was like, all right, I see which way this is going. Allow me to back up here just a minute. Chris went through the guys kind of quickly who went in the draft ahead of him in 2005. But I want to remind you of who they were. Pick number 11 in round number one was defensive end DeMarcus Ware from Troy. He ended his career with nine Pro Bowls, a Super Bowl trophy, and over 100 sacks, and he will most likely be enshrined into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2022, his first year of eligibility. Also chosen in round one at pick number 20 was defensive end Marcus Spears, an All-American from LSU, who was drafted then to take on two offensive linemen on each play so that the four linebackers around him could make the tackles. Not a sexy job, but one that he did very well for eight years in Dallas. He was also a big key to the success of this unit. KB that Chris mentioned, he is Kevin Burnett, an All-American linebacker from Tennessee who played four years in Dallas at nearly every linebacker position. And what I remember most about him was when he played, when he was on the field, he made an impact every game. Marion Barber was chosen next, a running back from Minnesota who was a hard-nosed kid who scored 47 touchdowns for the Cowboys in his six years. His hit-or-get-hit style set a tone for this team on both sides of the ball. Defensive tackle Jay Ratliff is the last name that I'll remind you about. Chosen in round seven from Auburn, he was undersized when you looked at him as a defensive tackle, but not when you watched him. He was one of the toughest men to ever play football during his nine years as the Dallas Cowboy. Kevin Burnett. Jay is a scary guy, and I mean, he played that way. We had to camp, we had to camp and after that, like, he and I became really good friends. You know, him, Thomas Johnson, myself, Marcus Beard, DeMarcus, like, we all kind of clicked up. That was our group. A bunch of rookies brought in by Jerry and Stephen Jones and head coach Bill Parcells that, quote, clicked up. But it was more than just being buddies. They were all ready to play from the beginning. They all had winning in mind. Things were about to change in Dallas for your Cowboys. I remember getting together with that group of guys once we got down there. And it was just like, they had a lot of high character guys. They had guys that loved football. And they had guys with leadership intangibles. And I think we all recognized that within one another. And so it wasn't about trying to figure out who was the best. It was about trying to figure out how we can work together so that we could be at our best when the season got around, because that's what we were focused on. Here's Kevin Burnett to remind us that it wasn't just the defensive guys in that draft that set a tone. Marion Barber was the key that brought us all together. And a running back brought them all together. And if you were ever around Marion Barber III, Marion the Barbarian, then you know he didn't bring them together with his outgoing personality. He was, to say the least, very quiet. 
But what he did exude was a fierce toughness, and those defensive guys respected it, and they loved it. He was one of them. The class of 2005 for the Dallas Cowboys. Now, I remember being surprised when it seemed like lots of guys on the defense at training camp were sidling up next to Chris for tips on the new defense that Bill Parcells and Mike Zimmer were putting in. He's a rookie. But remember, Bill told Chris when they drafted him. He told him on the phone, we're going to run the same defense that you played at Virginia with Al. It was the same exact defense. I'm teaching veterans what to do on the defense. Like everybody in the front seven, they're coming to me asking me questions about how to play things and what are the calls, what are the checks and all this stuff. Because I knew the defense forward and backwards. I played it four years in Virginia. That had to have been a cool feeling, being a rookie and having new teammates and veterans ask for your help on this new defense that you knew so well. How'd you think rookie camp went overall? After rookie minicamp, guys went back home for a little bit and then came back for all of the OTAs and stuff. And that was our little group when we came back from the OTAs. Like, that was our group. And that's kind of how we, we worked out together. We were in the film room, studying extra tape, trying to figure out the ways that we want to get better. Because Bill had told us that he was going to be dependent on us to play as rookies. We kind of had to grow up quick. So the energy that we media guys thought we saw at rookie camp carried over when you guys got back for OTAs. And now the head coach is looking at all of you and saying, get ready, you're going to all be playing. Pretty cool. Back to Kevin Burnett. I remember him saying, hey, we need, we need you guys to play right away. When you look at it, we all contributed very early to be able to, one, be drafted in that class with such talent, and then, two, get the opportunity to play with guys that I still keep in contact with. It was amazing. It was amazing, and it was a bond and an energy that even we media guys could feel. It excited us for what might happen in the next few years, just like it did you guys. But in all of this excitement and love for each other, Chris, you didn't tell us how all of you guys were getting on with Jay Ratliff. Did he ever say more than five words? Jay is one of those guys, man. He's your best friend or your worst enemy. And, and you know, he and I, we stayed pretty close throughout the years. Like, I talked to him, you know, once a week. The one thing that I can say looking back on it is that Jay Ratliff was a better friend to me than I was to him when we were in Dallas. And it's just because he always looked out for me. He always tried to make sure that he steered me away from some of the things away from the field that could have taken away from what I was trying to do on the field. He was very protective in a brotherly type of way, like not wanting to have a lot of strange people around me. That way to this day. And I love him for that. What a nice thing for you. Was the rest of the group that way with each other? We were all really, really close. And, you know, it was just, it was like, you weren't going to, you weren't going to mess with my brother. Like, that's my brother. Throughout my life, my favorite parts of sports, even above the competition that I craved so much, was the team aspect. Relationships, giving and taking, helping each other, supporting each other, and loving each other. And when it culminates in winning, something really special can happen. Chris. Here's the thing about it, Brady. We all had some of that connection. All of us had it. Marcus, DeMarcus, Jay, Thomas Johnson, who was there, you know, Kevin Burnett. Uh, like, we all had that kind of connection. And that's how winning begins, whether it was just a great job of drafting the right kind of people, or maybe it was just that there were five really talented defenders with one beast physical running back added at the right time. Or maybe a ton of it was Parcells and his mind games that worked so often. Whatever it was, it was palpable and undeniable and important for the Cowboys franchise. Kevin. D-Ware, we, we were training buddies. Me and Sears hung out off the field. I had my own individual relationship with everybody. I was close with everybody, and I'm grateful for all those relationships today. 
Quote, it's got to be about something bigger than you. And never did a team do magical things without everyone being in. The Dallas Mavericks and their 2011 NBA championship taught us that too. It's funny because KB is coaching down in Miami. He had me on a Zoom chat and I talked about that togetherness that we had on our football team. And I was trying to tell his guys, if you're going to be a good team, you got to ride for each other. You got to have that connectivity. If you don't, then you're not going to be successful. It's got to be about something that's bigger than you. And I think it got to a point pretty early on in our tenure down in Dallas where we realized it's not about just the one guy. It's about how we roll as a team. At AT AT&T, everyone, new and existing customers, get our best deals on every smartphone. Why? Because you deserve it for turning your living room into your office and your gym. For teaching grandma how to video call. And teaching her again. It's the button on your left, Nana. Okay, your other left. It's not complicated. Everyone deserves something new. So AT&T has given everyone, new and existing customers, our best deals with every unlimited plan on every smartphone, even the latest ones. AT&T may temporarily slow data speeds if the network is busy. Restrictions and exceptions may apply. Hi, I'm Clint Tillerson with... And I'm Jay Novacek. And we're both with... United United Ag and Turf. Turf. The official tractor provider of the Dallas Cowboys. So, if you need a tractor to bale some hay, a mower to cut some grass, or a gator to get some chores done, get a John Deere at United Ag and Turf. And then, let's get to work. Hey, Jay, that's my line. (laughs) Well, not today. Get to work with a John Deere tractor package that's just right for you and your budget. Visit UnitedAgandTurf.com. Before there was a draft, you could size up a cowboy by three simple factors. The crease in his hat, the bend of his brim, and his unbeatable bending attitude. A man Stetson didn't just protect him from what life threw at him, it projected a rugged, unstoppable spirit. Stetson hats are still American-made with pride right here in Texas. They're still the unofficial crown of all self-respecting cowboys, and Stetson is proud to be on the field with America's team. Find a retailer nearest you at stetson.com cowboys. New Dr. Pepper Zero Sugar. You deserve it. I do deserve that. You deserve decadent flavor without sugar and a day at the beach without sand getting everywhere and a relaxing bath that your children don't interrupt. I deserve all that? It's really just a visual metaphor for Dr. Pepper Zero Sugar. Everything you want, nothing you don't. A visual metaphor on the radio. I do deserve that. Dr. Pepper Zero Sugar. The zero you deserve is finally here. The whole Tony Romo to Cabo during the bye week with Jessica Simpson, that got a lot of play after we lost that divisional round game to the Giants, and we know they went on to win the Super Bowl. Well, that's jumping ahead a little bit, but yes, 13 wins during the regular season and a top seed led to head coach Wade Phillips doing a couple things that may have thrown things a bit askew. One was telling Romo and Witten to get away, you guys. Get out of town. So Romo and Witten and linebacker Bobby Carpenter did what rich guys do. They left and went to paradise. It wasn't wild parties and late nights. It was three guys, two girlfriends, and one wife. But the sheer idea of it didn't sit right with fans. They wanted their guys in town, in bed on time, and focused by damn. And that little trip, for whatever reason, tilted things in a manner that hadn't been felt in this very special season. And then they lost. That, to me, is the season that I lament. Like, I actually talked about it on my radio show today. It still bothers me to this day because that was the most talented team that I had ever been a part of. And to fall short 
of our expectations and not to realize our potential is one of my biggest regrets in all of sports. And this is coming from a guy that actually won a championship. So I couldn't imagine how the guys that didn't win a championship that were on that team feel about it. In talking to many from that team, they all felt the same way. They had lost a chance for something huge and special. And sometimes when you're young, you don't realize how fleeting those moments of possible greatness that are right in front of you can be. I don't think that that affected the way we felt about our team. Now, did that affect the results moving forward? Yeah, I think they did. I really think they did. Like, from that point on, it started to splinter off. You know, I, I left in free agency after the following season. Some other guys started moving around, going to other places. And it just quite wasn't the same. And I remember talking to Jay about that. He said, it's just not the same. See, it's just not the same. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, when you have a good culture in your locker room, you have to protect that. Like, as important as talent acquisition is in the NFL, the best players don't always make the best team, but the best team always wins. And that's what the 2007 Giants taught us. And I, I truly do believe that we had the character and we had the culture in that locker room in 2007 and some of the decisions that were made by the front office and by ownership, they weren't necessarily decisions that were in the best interest of maintaining and continuing to foster the culture. I think the lack of success is the result. Very to the point, and these are the things that drive conversations on radio shows and amongst fans every day. Talent is awesome and almost always easy to see. Chemistry and little decisions that get made that change things? Often are not. For example, the Cabo trip. The signing of Terrell Owens when Bill Parcells was against it for the possible ripple effect in the locker room. The hiring of Wade Phillips, who was affable and kind and everyone's buddy, but maybe a young team still needed that hammer that's always looking for a nail that was Bill Parcells. I think that Bill, there was a method to the madness, you know, and you don't appreciate it until you're on the other side of it. You know, guys like Keyshawn, when they were there, they tried to explain it to us. Keyshawn that Chris is talking about is former wide receiver great Keyshawn Johnson, whom Bill Parcells brought in when he came to Dallas. Keyshawn Johnson was a former number one overall pick, drafted by the Jets, and their head coach that drafted him was Bill Parcells. Keyshawn was a Big Bill guy. Four others who used to play for Parcells throughout their years were also brought in when he came to Dallas. They were there to sell the locker room on his methods, which as we have heard in past stories here on A Cowboy Life, could be different. Oh hell, let's just say it. Sometimes his methods were strange, weird, or brutal. What he was trying to do was force us to bond together as a team. And then eventually he was hoping that you stood up to him because he knew if you would stand up to him, you'll stand up to any kind of adversity that you face in the game. You know, you're not going to back down from a challenge from somebody in the game, you know, but if you didn't do that, then how can he trust you that you were going to be tough enough, that you were going to fight enough when the game was on the line? So it was kind of one of those things where it's like, he was on you, he was on you, he would needle you, he would, he would scream at you, he would yell at you. But he was also trying to build you up that way. It was like a tear you down to build you up. That was Bill. Yes, it was. And I only know some of the things that he did, but I'll give you a few examples. When things were going well for the team, he would put mousetraps above everyone's locker. You could see them. 
complete with cheese, and he would tell his team, don't eat that cheese. The cheese, during the good times, would be handed out by us media guys. When times are good, we tend to gush on the players. Thus, don't eat their cheese. Other times, he would tell us in the leering press things about players or circumstances because he wanted us to go tell the players what he'd said to embarrass them a little bit or wake them up, and he had us do it, so he didn't have to. For a while, at least, his methods were working. Guys were responding. At least, most of them were. But not every young athlete is ready for the hammer. Tear you down to build you up. But Chris, he could handle it. You know why it's not a bad thing? Because you're never as good as you think you are. You're never as good as, you know, Tom Coughlin used to always say this, and I love TC for this. He used to stand up in front of us and he said, fellas, I'm your mirror. I'm only telling you what I see. It's your decision to you know, to, to figure out what, what kind of team we're going to be. It's up to you. I can't control that. I can just tell you what I see. And that's what Bill was. And, you know, Brady, here's the thing about it. Any player that's worth his salt wants to be coached hard. Guys want to be coached just like children want discipline, even though when they're going through it, they hate it. That lets them know that the coach actually gives a damn about what they're doing. The coach gives a damn about them realizing their potential and being as successful in this business as you possibly can be. I remember running into Bill one day at the Cowboys golf course and we talked a little bit and I asked him what was the hardest part about coaching. And he said that only about half of the players on NFL teams really wanted to play. I looked at him funny and he said, they all want to play on Sunday, but Monday film sessions and getting called out, weightlifting every day, monitoring their eating, hitting hard in practice, learning the game plan backwards and forwards, taking hard coaching even when your feelings were getting hurt, all of that stuff, and by the way, he said, that stuff is what win games, that stuff, only about half of them really want it. And it often is so disappointing to me as a coach because I see guys who could be players in this league for a long time. Some could make Pro Bowls, and they just don't want to do the work. I only had two years with him, but Bill Parcells is my favorite coach of all time. He's my favorite coach I've ever had because he, he showed me that he gave a damn. Like, there was so much attention to it, watching every single rep and talking to me about things that I was doing in the game, good and bad. Like, I appreciated that. It's hard to have a full appreciation for it until you're removed from it. And I think that's, you know, when, when certain guys were in it, certain certain personalities, it, it didn't necessarily, his approach, his delivery didn't necessarily go over as well. The young team that Parcells was sculpting was coming around. His first year in Dallas with Quincy Carter at quarterback, the team won an unlikely 10 games and made the playoffs. And Bill cried at that press conference and said, you can't call them losers anymore. It meant something to him. The next year, Quincy Carter got cut because he had his own personal demons that he just couldn't overcome, and the Cowboys played quarterback roulette. But there was something brewing in the background with that kid Romo, and then Canty and Ware and Spears came in the 05 draft class, and things were really moving. 06 brought the playoffs again with Romo, now at the helm, but a fumbled snap when the team was just about to win the game seemed to just kill Bill Parcells. Bill had started us out on something, and we didn't get a chance to see it through with him. With a lot of us, we're coming out of this college environment, and we're playing prominent roles as first-year guys in the NFL. So we still had a little bit of that college mentality where it's like, okay, this is my coach, and this is going to be it. Like, he's going to be my coach, and that's never going to change. 
But in the NFL, you know, it's there for not for long. So after that disappointing loss in the playoffs in 2006 up in Seattle, we was like, all right, cool. We know what the playoffs is like. We're going to run this back. We're going to ball out. We're going to get back to this point. And we're going to be that much better because we know what this is all about. We know how the game changes. We know how we got to get better. And then to not have Bill leading us back to that, that was tough. I vividly remember that press conference when I knew Parcells had felt that loss in Seattle so deeply that he wouldn't go on. Kevin Burnett. Was I surprised Bill left? No. I knew Bill was kind of on his way out from the standpoint the game just wasn't the same. Bill Parcells put so much into his coaching that as he got older, it almost became dangerous for him. You could see his health deteriorating right in front of our eyes on a daily basis. And to be fair, he was also absolutely wearing everyone out in the Cowboys front office. He was tough to be around. But the players, as you can hear, loved him. Here's Tony Romo. I wanted Bill to come back at that time. I go into his office with Jason and I said, Coach, you have to stay. He's like, no, guys, you're going to be fine. It's going to be great. Enjoy coaching with you. Da, 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 da. I feel bad that I let you down, but I can promise you I'm going to be a different player going forward. Trust me, you want to stick around. I think he thought he got the best out of our team. Maybe he could. He's like, it's going to be so hard to get our team back to that level, but I'm done. It's just, it's time. 2007, yeah, we were 13-3, and number one seed in the NFC, but if Bill Parcells is our coach, there's no telling how that season might have ended because I have no doubt you had a tougher team physically, mentally, and emotionally. Not to say anything bad about Wade because Wade is a good football coach, mm-hmm. but Bill Parcells is on another level. Wade Phillips was a great defensive mind. He was a pretty good head coach, too. His record was 82-64 and 64 in regular season games, but he had never won a playoff game as a head coach in Buffalo with the Bills or in Denver with the Broncos when the Cowboys took on the Giants as a top seed in the 2007 playoffs. Bill Parcells, he was proven. He'd won 11 postseason games, including two Super Bowls. In every way, Bill Parcells and Wade Phillips were different, and the players felt it. Wade's genius was in his ability to scheme on the defensive side of the football, right? Yeah, that was Wade's genius. But here's, here's the thing. This is a misconception that a lot of people have. If you're a coach in the NFL, you got good schemes. That's not what's going to separate you from the rest of the competition. It's about getting grown men to do what they don't want to do so they can become what they want to become. And different coaches have different ways of being able to sell guys on that. But that's mm-hmm. what it becomes about. How can you sell a group of men that you have on doing what it takes to become a champion? How can you get them to sacrifice individual glory for the betterment of the team? Wade's players loved him, especially the defensive players, because he made them better and he got them to Pro Bowls. But it was visible to everyone as that successful 2000 season progressed that the fear and motivation that Parcells had brought out in these same young Cowboys was dissipating the inmates were beginning to run the asylum. They were reading their own press clippings, and as we mentioned before, they were now eating the cheese, and it was happening at exactly the wrong time. But back to Chris in that 07 season. You guys were really good, Chris. Want to use what the pros use? How about the official men's skincare brand of the Dallas Cowboys? 
Jack Black. Right now, you can get the Jack Black Starter, a curated collection of Cowboys locker room favorites for just 10 bucks with free shipping. The starter includes four Jack Black skincare favorites plus a full-sized intense therapy lip balm. Go to getjackblack.com slash cowboys and use the code word TEAMJB. That's getjackblack.com slash cowboys. The Jack Black Starter, 10 bucks, free shipping. At AT&T, everyone, new and existing customers, get our best deals on every smartphone. Why? Because you deserve it. For turning your living room into your office and your gym. For teaching grandma how to video call and teaching her again. It's the button on your left, Nana. Okay, your other left. It's not complicated. Everyone deserves something new. So AT&T has given everyone new and existing customers our best deals with every unlimited plan on every smartphone, even the latest ones. AT&T may temporarily slow data speeds if the network's busy. Restrictions and exceptions may apply. Hi, I'm Clint Tillerson with... And I'm Jay Novacek. And we're both with... United, United Ag, Ag and Turf. Turf. The official tractor provider of the Dallas Cowboys. So, if you need a tractor to bale some hay, a mower to cut some grass, or a gator to get some chores done... Get a John Deere at United Ag and Turf. And then, let's get to work. Hey, Jay, that's my line. <laughs> well, not today. Get to work with a John Deere tractor package that's just right for you and your budget. Visit UnitedAgandTurf.com. Before the was a draft you could size up a cowboy by three simple factors the crease in his hat the bend of his brim and his unbending attitude a man stetson didn't just protect him from what life threw at him it projected a rugged unstoppable spirit stetson hats are still american made with pride right here in texas they're still the unofficial crown of all self-respecting cowboys and stetson is proud to be on the field with america's team find a retailer nearest you at stetson.com cowboys We expected to be good that year. After that loss in Seattle, we, we really felt like as a group, it was time for us to take off. You know, and I remember Bill telling me my rookie year, he said, I usually only give a guy three years to show me what he's got. By year three, if you hadn't shown me anything, you know, I'm, I'm going to move in a different direction. And so for me personally, it was like, all right, this is year three. Even though Bill's not here, what he believes, I'm sure a lot of other people around the NFL believe, if I'm going to maximize this career, if I'm going to have some longevity playing football, then i got to make some hay this year. And I think a lot of guys in my draft class felt that same way. It was a breakout year for all of them. Indeed it was. That 2007 team under Wade Phillips sent 13 players to the Pro Bowl, a massive number, and five of them were all pro. There were gaudy statistics all over the Cowboys roster when the regular season ended. Plus, there were 13 wins. They were good from the beginning, well, almost to the end. It didn't surprise me that we started off the way that we did. We got served a, a slice of humble pie when the Patriots rolled in there, but that's one of the greatest football teams that was ever assembled. We knew we were going to be good. You see, this group felt like they had unfinished business after losing on a bad break to Seattle in the playoffs in 06. So even if Bill Parcells wouldn't stick around to see if they were good, the players knew they were. And the regular season loss to the Patriots in week number six after starting 5-0, and it didn't kill their spirit. It galvanized it. People were touting it as a potential Super Bowl preview, but we were like, we're going to see these guys again. So we weren't going to linger on that. We were just like, let's just roll everybody else, take care of our business, and make sure that we improve in the areas that we need to. We're going to see these guys again. So 5-0 and and then 5-1 and with a loss to Brady, Moss, and the Patriots. But no heads were down, and I know that because they won their next seven games and went to 12-1. and And there was an especially big game during that run. 
The Green Bay game was a big game. We kicked their teeth in. That was an ass kicking top to bottom. Matter of fact, we knocked Brett Favre out that game. That was actually my first time playing against Aaron Rodgers. I was like, this is going to be pretty good when they hand the reins off to him. That was probably the last time we felt good about our performance, top to bottom. So great news on kicking good Packer team all over the field, but not good news in that it was your last complete game before the playoffs because the playoffs were still five weeks away. When we beat Green Bay the way that we beat them, I was just like, yeah, we're going to the Super Bowl. It's going to come down to us and the Patriots. See, that statement is what I felt in the locker room. 12-1 and one, you just beat a good team and everyone's sort of like, we're good, which also had me worried about a letdown. This is where Parcells really would have helped with his tricks and jabs and ways to keep the team focused and on edge and not comfortable and entitled. When we lost to Philly, it was just kind of like, all right, it sucks, but we know we're going to be the number one seed. So it was just a matter of us getting everything tuned up and getting ready for the postseason. There was that thing again. We lost, and it sucks, but it'll be okay. And then they squeaked by a bad Carolina team in Week 15, then rested everyone in Week 16 and got blasted. So from 12-1 and to losing two of their last three, and then a bye week, and that wasn't good either. Because the Giants, they'd never stop playing. Their playoffs seemingly started in Week 12 just to get in the playoffs. And New York just kept getting better and playing, and they had momentum, especially on that brutally good defense. Losing in the playoffs, especially to a team like the New York Giants, like we couldn't even fathom that. Like that wasn't even on our radar. We weren't playing great ball. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't. You yeah. know, we had talked about it, but we weren't doing it. I remember. I could feel it. But in some ways, it seemed unlucky. Like, clinching early was really unlucky. Getting your biggest win in week 13 when there were four weeks left was too soon. And then there were nagging injuries as well. Kevin Burnett. What happened in the season, we just couldn't correct our problems fast enough. We were a good football team that had holes. They had some holes that needed to be figured out before the playoffs. And when the playoff game versus the Giants came around, well, Wade Phillips had made some changes, and he changed some things. But not things that needed to be changed, it seemed, like taking Julius Jones out of the starting lineup at running back. Well, why is he starting this game? We had a good thing going. It was Julius Jones that was kind of tenderizing him, and then Marion would close the game. And Marion's physical running style was perfect for being a closer. But we kind of did it backwards and we opened the door for the Giants. You know, right. it's one of those cliches in football. You throw to score and you run to win. And when you have a lead, especially against a team like the Giants, second half, we should have been focused on trying to take the air out of the football. Without getting too detailed about what happened at running back during the year, Marion Barber was the closer. He averaged 12 and a half carries a game in the regular season and scored 12 TDs and played mostly in the second half. Julius Jones averaged nine carries a game and about 75% of those runs were in the first half. And now it had all changed. Marion Barber had a nice first half versus the Giants, over 100 yards in the first half, but on 22 carries and he was dead on his feet in the second half against a fired up, really good Giants defense that smelled blood. T.O. was hobbled and Terry Glenn was gutting through an injury that he'd had for weeks. Julius Jones got three carries total. The second half was a defensive struggle. The Giants won seven to three. And just like that, just that quickly, the air was completely gone out of Texas Stadium and a great season was over. Here's the thing, when we were in the locker room at halftime, we were like, all right, 14-14. Let's stop dicking around. Let's play our, we haven't played our best football. We're gonna turn it on in the second half. But the problem with that mentality is, 
It's not a light switch. You can't just turn it on and off. In the regular season, it felt like they could. They won games late all the time. But the playoffs are a whole different animal. And that animal that they faced in the New York Giants was hungry and relishing the fight. And the New York Giants have been in playoff mode for the last five or six of the weeks of the season, and we weren't. So they had a level of desperation, a level of urgency that we just didn't have. And that's why when we came out from halftime, you could tell the way that the game was unfolding, the complexion of it, it wasn't going to be our day. You absolutely could feel that. The Giants were starting to have fun. They were smiling. They were wreaking havoc. The Cowboys were on their heels. They looked desperate and like they could feel that momentum was going the wrong way, but they couldn't do anything about it. And there was a huge play in this game. Fourth quarter, it almost turned out, but it didn't. Y'all probably remember a third down midfield or so that was to keep a drive going. Romo flipped his hips and got away. He went to left and a huge defensive lineman was in front of him and he threw underneath his armpit. It was a strike to Pat Creighton and he might have gone all the way to the end zone, but he dropped the pass. Romo said after the game that the ball had come from such a weird place that he knew it would be tough for Pat to see. And that was it. It was huge. Because we knew at that moment we lost. Like we knew when we didn't get that big conversion, that was it. We probably weren't going to win that game. And after so many times of being on the right side of those types of plays all year long, to be on the wrong side of it, that was tough. These seasons are so long. They are a journey, a winding road, and there's plenty of luck involved. Timing of injuries, timing of big plays that you make, drop passes in week five, they don't feel huge. In the division round of the playoffs, they punch you in the gut because you're having trouble breathing already. It was devastation. It was surreal. Like, it was like, we're not done, are we? We got a game next week, don't we? It was like, no, nah, the season's over with. Yeah. And then you got T.O. crying in the press room about the criticism on Tony Romo and how that's unfair. You guys can point the finger at him. You, you can talk about the vacation. And if you do that, it's really unfair. It's really unfair. It's my team. It's my quarterback. Terrell Owens knew it was a team effort that the passing game had failed. He had four catches on 10 balls thrown his way, one TD early in the game. Terry Glenn was hobbling. He was basically a decoy. The two of them only caught six of the 15 balls thrown their way. The Giants took away Witten in the second half and they terrorized Romo because the running game was gassed after the first half. We all knew there was blame to go around. It was rough, man. Like that was, that was one of them like, you knew it when it happened. You know, a lot of times people say, well, when you're a young player and you don't take advantage of opportunities to win a championship, you don't really worry about it or it doesn't hit your hand. That's not true. In that moment, we all knew we cost ourselves a chance to win a title. We play that Giants team 10 times, we're going to beat them at least seven. The weight of 13 years without a championship for Dallas was on that team, and it got heavier as the season wound down. Everybody in that locker room knew they were really good, and they were supposed to win, but they also knew the world was expecting them to win. And here's the crazy thing. A lot of those guys I called teammates later on in my career, and even they couldn't figure out how that happened. They told me they couldn't figure it out. Right. You guys were the better team. They knew you were the better team. They knew you had more players. You were more the more players. talented. Now, but see, that's the thing, Brady. We were the more talented team, but they were more of a team. 
they had that, that cohesion, those intangibles that you need to win at the highest levels in this game. Mm. They had it. We didn't. So as a fan, you begin to wonder why. Why, if you could feel those intangibles going missing, that cohesion going away, why didn't somebody do something? Well, I'll tell you this. When you're entering the playoffs, there are now 30 weeks behind you. Who you are as a team is mostly decided by now. And in those moments, you need your heroes to bail you out. Heroes showed up on the giant side of the ball. Chris didn't really realize all this until, well, he was a giant a couple of years later. And you could really define that once you got there and met them. You could sort of yeah. sense it. Oh yeah, when you're a part of it, absolutely. Strange, isn't it? But understandable. You think about what happened, but when you get into the enemy camp and they tell you what happened and what they were thinking about themselves and about you, it all becomes clear why you didn't win. And then, Chris was a giant in 2012, and he and his team knew exactly how to handle adversity deep into that season and all the way through the playoffs. We lost four straight games that season. And we all banded together and we went on a hell of a run. One, I think we won six straight games. Had to win two to get in, won the division, destroyed Atlanta, destroyed Green Bay when Aaron Rodgers was 15-1, and one. went out to San Francisco and beat their ass in, in overtime, and then we won the Super Bowl against the Patriots. Nobody thought we were going to win. <laughs> well, that's the damn truth. The Patriots were once again a top seed at 13-3, and three, and they win Super Bowls. They know how. The Giants went 9-7 and seven and squeaked their way into a wild card game again. Only they actually came in hot because they had been playing for their lives again. There was a local news outlet, a guy by the name of Bruce Beck, NBC, and he got a soundbite from me. He asked me, what could you, what can we expect on Super Bowl Sunday? And I told him, I said, the fans back home can expect a tough, hard-fought game and tell them they need to get ready for a parade on Tuesday. I mean, I essentially guaranteed a Super Bowl win. That's how confident we were. Because we had that, that lightning in a bottle that, that everybody talks about. We had that. And when you're a part of it, it's, it's hard to explain it. But you know it when you're in it. And, and I felt that. It was different than any other feeling I'd had about any team I'd ever been on. You know, I told Chris that I remember being so happy for him that he'd won a Super Bowl. And he cut me off mid-sentence. And he said this. Brady, I'll always look back on 07. And it'll always hurt. It'll always hurt. Always. I wish I had a chance to do it with the guys that I came in with, because that was our goal. And we committed to that for the four years that we were all together. A cowboy to the end. Chris Canty played 11 years in the NFL and he won a Super Bowl, but he was only a cowboy for his first four years. But you can hear it in his voice. Once a cowboy, especially with that special rookie group he was drafted with, always a cowboy. Thanks to Kevin Burnett and Tony Romo for chiming in, and especially to Chris Canty, thanks Chris, for telling us about your Cowboy life.